Seminary Podcast. We are an apostolic community dedicated to forming Roman Catholic priests for the new evangelization. I don't know, is this amplification working? No, it's only this. Oh, it's that one, yeah. This is for recording. That's recording. Got it. Got it. Um, I've got this funny accent and uh, pray they can't help that. But I, do, uh, I, I feel so welcome here. I've never been this far south, except once in a state you've heard of next door called Texas. Um, uh, and I've never been to New Orleans before. And I know you have this wonderful reputation for hospitality, but I didn't know it was quite as deserved as it really is. And I'm very, very grateful to you, uh, who've entertained me and my wife so royally in the last couple of days, and it's lovely to be with you. Um, And I don't know whether I'm going to say the right sort of things for your purposes. I had to guess at what you might like me to talk about. And in the end, I talk about, I'm going to talk about what I always talk about, whether you like it or not. (laughs) (coughs) I invite you today to give thought to a rather surprising, not to say perhaps shocking, and maybe you will also think disappointingly downbeat statement that Thomas Aquinas makes towards the beginning of his Summa Theologiae. It surprised me at any rate when I first read him as saying that for all its learning and for all its closely argued presentation, the theological enterprise ends in failure. Actually, it's worse than that. He says, theology fails not just in the end, but from the outset. For, and I quote him now, we do not know what God is, even by the revelation of grace. And so it is that by grace we are joined to God as to one who is unknown to us. End of quote. He does not say, God is hard to know, we have to work on it, very simply says that whatever we do, whatever we try or think, what God is escapes the grip of every form of knowledge available to us, even that of faith. It's true that the full text of the passage which I've just quoted provides a context and an important qualification, qualification that I'll come to in due course. But as it stands, and despite that qualification, Thomas does let it stand, by any measure, it is a startlingly agnostic statement. I imagine it would be less troubling to the modern theological minds had Thomas said only that God's nature is unknown to us by way of our theologically limited powers of reason. That, after all, is a proposition that a modern theologian in the spirit, say, of Karl Barth, would be only too pleased to endorse. If only Thomas had said that whatever about reason's failure, at any rate, by faith, we do know what God is. But that's not what he says. He says that God is unknown to us even within the revelation of grace. And that's puzzling. Now, ever the deadpan writer and teacher, even when dropping theological bombshells like that, Thomas tells us of this unknowing in an article of the Summa in which he asks whether grace affords us a higher knowledge of God than that which could be had by natural reason. And in the dialectical manner that he employs for such discussions, Thomas first addresses the opinion to which in due course he he will say that he is opposed, or at least will qualify. He asks, is there not a case to be made for the view that the revelation of grace gets us no further into the knowledge of God than does the reach of reason alone? Now, you might reasonably think that you could guess where Thomas is going to go with this. You'll imagine he'll say that, of course, by faith we're drawn further into the knowledge of God than by reason. Uh, But beware, I suggest, of second-guessing Thomas, for this is where he catches you out. There are, he says, powerful objections to any such proposition, one of them supplied by this mysterious pseudo-Dennis, who tells us that though what in this life unites us best to God is grace... Still, even by grace, we are made one with God as to a being who, he says, in Thomas's Latin, omnino ignoto, altogether unknown to us. 
Hence, the grace of revelation gains no better traction on God than what bare reason anyway affords us. And in either case, we're left in the dark as to what God is. We're wandering, as it were, without intellectual bearings, lost in a cloud of unknowing. But that's not all, Thomas adds. For scripture, no less, tells us that Moses is of the same mind as the pseudo-Dennis. Thomas doesn't say where in scripture records, but this is recorded, but doubtless he's thinking here, as elsewhere, of a great epiphany recorded in Exodus 33, uh, verses 17 to 23. There we're told that having ascended to the summit of Mount Sinai, shrouded in a cloud of unknowing, Moses is instructed by Yahweh to hide himself in the cleft of a rock so as not to see the Lord's face when he passes by. For seeing the face of God is dangerous. You need to be on the other side of death to survive the experience. For, I quote, no one may see my face and live. That's Yahweh. This is strong stuff, open to no qualification, and a lot of theologians don't seem to get it. Many seem to think that once you get to the hang of theological talk, if not by way of reason, then maybe from the Bible, and certainly in Christ, God is as knowable to us as, to borrow a phrase from Herbert McCabe, the man in the next street along. But Thomas will not have it so. Biblical authority weighs heavily against such claims, uh, against claims to such cheap and easily acquired knowledge of God. Before God, faith is every bit as benighted as is reason. And Thomas is going to have to bow to the biblical authority, and so he does. Let us concede that by the revelation of grace we do not know what God is, he says. But that statement stands, come what may. All the same, he goes on, and I quote him again, we do know God more fully, insofar as by grace we are shown more of his effects and higher ones. And that is so inasmuch as on the basis of revelation, we make some attributions of God of a kind unavailable to reason, such that God is three and one. End of quote. So now the whole passage stands before us, and it is rather puzzling. The bold and unqualified agnostic statement, emphatically reaffirmed in itself, is supplemented by a puzzling qualification tacked onto it, which makes the whole argument hard to make out. In particular, it's puzzling in that it might, seem to have, uh, it might seem to amount both to saying something, namely, that we do not know what God is, and then, scarcely a breath taken, denying it with an implied nonetheless. Nonetheless, Thomas says, God is known better by faith than by reason. Well then, one or the other. Either we do know God, what he is, or we don't. If we know God better by faith, and somehow less well by reason, then it seems to be implied that even by reason we do know at least something about what God is, even if not very much. And that doesn't seem to fit with the bold statement with which the passage begins. Whether by reason or by faith, we do not know what God is. God's nature is to us altogether unknown. The argument is evidently in need of some clarification. So let's try let us allow the agnostic statement to stand. This side of death, we do not and cannot know what God is. Whatever, whatever else is going on to say, Thomas holds on to that proposition. And you can get his drift along some such lines as this. We human beings are worldly creatures. The world is our natural home. For we are, after all, animals. Environmentally locked into a material ecosystem with which, by way of our bodies, we are finely calibrated. In that universe of experience, in the material world to which our minds are thus naturally attuned, we, cannot, we can get to know any individual thing with which our senses acquaint us, in its distinct individuality. This tree, this person, my wife, or each of you, only under some description of the kind of thing that each is an individual instance of. More simply put, I love my wife. I love her in her individuality, of course, but just as obviously, I love her in her individual womanhood. 
That is, I love her as being what she is. And the knowledge and love of who she is is inextricably tied in with the what, the two together. That's just how we love. You need both the who and the what to do it. Now, when we, Jews, Christians and Muslims, all of us, all of us together, uh, <coughs> say that there is but one God, the ultimate and complete object of our knowledge and love, we immediately cause ourselves a problem, precisely arising from this insistence that we do not know what God is. We're commanded to love God, <coughs> it would seem, not knowing what it is that we love. But if we're denied the knowledge of what God is, how can we love <coughs> sorry, how can we love who God is? For if there's no kind of thing that God is, then it would seem to follow that in the case of God you can't get the distinction to work between the what and the who. And if that is so, what meaning can be rescued of the word one as designating this God, the God of all the Abrahamic faiths, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim? For sure, Thomas cannot find himself going down the line of supposing that Jewish and Muslim insistence on the oneness of God is somehow less mysterious than the Christian insistence on Trinitarian threeness. Truth is, Thomas says, that whether by God's oneness or by God's threeness, we're equally benighted, dumbfounded and baffled, drawn into that cloud of unknowing. In that case, how should we love God? Asks another Dominican. How could we love so unknowable a God? That other Dominican replies, I quote, You should love God unspiritually. You should love him as a non-God, a non-spirit, a non-person, a non-image, but as he is, a pure, unmixed, bright one, separated from all duality, and in that one we should eternally sink down, out of something, into nothing. May God help us to that. Amen. And that's from a sermon. <laughs> that Dominican, of course, is not Thomas. It's Meister Eckhart, writing some 40 years after Thomas's death. It's not exactly how Thomas will himself conclude, as we'll see. But it's a pretty accurate statement of where Thomas is at the end of question three of the Summa Theologiae. But there he says, you should not suppose even the arguments which show God to exist have got us anywhere near knowing what God is. The hopes for such knowledge are vain and must be quickly and firmly disappointed theologically. And in a truly magnificent act of theological self-denial, one that should put to shame the uncritical theolo theological optimists of our times, Thomas affirms in his deadpan academic manner exactly what Eckhart says in that rolling homiletic rhetoric. I quote Thomas, Since it is not possible to know of God what he is, we cannot give thought to the manner of God's existence, but only to how God is not. End of quote. Now, let us hold on to that thought for a moment, coming as it does as a bit of a surprise for many believers even as a shock for some, but it might seem to push God away as a being wholly remote, inaccessible to all human experience, hardly the God we come to know in Christ. And anyway, many will wonder, very reasonably, how Thomas can say that we do not know what God is, consistently with also saying, as he does at the very beginning of the summer, that we can, by means of five strategies of demonstration, prove the existence of God. And what would seem to be worse still, Thomas says that we can prove God's existence without any appeal to faith or revelation or to anything other than plain secular reason. How can this be? After all, the case for saying that God's existence can be proved, the Latin is deum esse probari potest, pretty strong, would seem to sit ill with not knowing what God is. Eat your cake, God's nature is unknowable, if you must. But if so, how can you also have it? As if, consistently with God's nature being beyond our ken, you could nonetheless prove God's existence. Just tell me how could an unknowable God be proved to exist? Well, some say nowadays you couldn't do it and shouldn't try, because anyway, Thomas probably never meant those five ways to be proofs at all. Maybe they're more like the poet's proofs, 
the world being, I quote, charged with the grandeur of God, as Jared Manley Hopkins says, is to the poet's eye of faith, not to the philosopher's reason, that God is shown to us in the world. Well, for myself, I'm unconvinced by this. You could easily turn this argument on its head. Only suppose you could prove the existence of God, the existence of an unknowable God, whose nature is altogether beyond our power of understanding, omnino ignota, altogether unknown, as the pseudo-Dennis said. Would not that show something about reason, namely that a rational proof is not, after all, a, limita a limitation imposed upon God? Rather, would it not show the opposite, that is, that reason, so long as you push it all the way along and up its trajectory of questioning and explaining the world and questioning and explaining, ultimately breaks out on the other side of its limits into the boundless mystery of an unknowable God. The notion that reason can only operate within a finite circle, forming an arc that endlessly returns upon itself, thus to enclose in its finitude, within its limits, all that falls within that remit, that account of reason just seems wrongly to explain what Thomas means by the word, the word reason. It is for sure an idea of reason that is recognisable in much enlightenment thinking, but it's nowhere to be found in Thomas. But as Thomas understands it, reason's trajectory is neither circular nor in any other way en enclosed, or if it has the character of the circular in any way at all, it is as spirals are circular, a circularity that is also extruded out into an open and unending linearity. As the pseudo-Dennis says, theology proceeds neither in a circle nor in a straight line, but most distinctively in that combination of both at once, which is the spiral. Therefore, just as Thomas asserts the demonstrability of God's existence, so also does he make himself quite clear by way of those proofs, our minds are opened up to something altogether beyond our comprehension. And it is that incomprehensible something which, Thomas says with characteristic brevity, all people call by the name God. Thus do the apophatic God of biblical instinct and the God of rational argument converge upon one, the one mystery of the divine. Reason then, Thomas says, is in its culminating theological act, self-dissolving. Its fullest achievement is to reach beyond itself into unknowing, a docta ignorantia, a learned ignorance, as Nicholas of Cusa said. It is reason humbled by the very God it reaches out to. For Thomas, the proofs of the existence of God show that at the end of the line, there escaping the grip of reason is ungraspable mystery. What most exists that which sustains all other realities in existence, is unknowable. By the way, as Thomas will go on to show, that mystery has a name. The true name of that mystery is, of course, love. What then of faith? What difference does faith make to what reason can already achieve? Thomas might seem to be caught in a dilemma, parallel to that in which it seemed reason was entangled, as if he were wanting to have it both ways here too. For having said that it's not only reason that must fail of the knowledge of God's nature, but that faith does too, nonetheless he goes on to say that faith somehow supplies some knowledge of God that to reason is denied. And in a certain sense, that's true, but it's not the obvious sense. For it turns out that what Thomas means is that faith does not dispel the darkness of God, on the contrary, in faith, one enters more deeply into that darkness, not escaping it, not dispelling, but intensifying it. Not, after all, all that very difficult to see what he's getting at in so saying. For it is a paradox. if it is a paradox, it's a paradox with a parallel in common secular experience. Of course, every human being is a mystery to someone. So no matter whom I observe in the bus or on the railway station or in the street, I know that much about them. Their being a mystery simply goes with the fact of their being persons. Everyone is a mystery to someone. But as to your life partner, many years of your intimacy with her will but draw you ever deeper into that heady unknowing which is love, a love that is not there for a failure of knowledge, 
but rather a knowledge that, born of a love in a common life shared, also shows her to exist beyond her lover's grasp, not possessed, but free and unconstrained, as only lovers do, at once in an intimacy and in an objectivity perfectly aligned the one with the other. That, Thomas says, is the way in which through faith we know more of God than reason does. That's why, Thomas says, it is through faith that we know the Trinity, of which by reason we can never know, even if by reason we can know that God is one. But what is this more that we can know when it is revealed to us in faith that God is three persons in one nature? Is this faith in the Trinity somehow grounded in more information about God? Information of the sort you might have gained about people passing by in the street when you've checked out the statistics. That woman is black, so her median income is going to be 20% or more below that of the white male next to her, and in consequence is likely to feel oppressed by the unjust disparity. You can know that. But no, the doctrine of the Trinity is not a bit of additional information about God. And for that reason, it is tempting to say that the contrast being appealed to is again a false contrast, here between what is represented as if a merely rational knowledge, detached, objective, dispassionate and uninvolved, and what so many in the Middle Ages called an intellectus amoris, love's understanding, that of faith. William of St. Thierry had said in the 12th century, amor ipse intellectus est, love has its own manner of knowing, of which intellect knows nothing. And today as well, many attempted to follow down that sort of line by way of distinguishing between reason and faith. In fact, one of Thomas's own students, Giles of Rome, yields to the temptation, saying that there is the contemplation of God, typical of the philosophers, which is of detached intellect, uninvolved and objective, and it contrasts with the higher knowledge of the theologians which I quote, is more a matter of experience than of wisdom's expertise, and it consists more in loving and in sweetness than in philosophical contemplation, end of quote. But Thomas firmly slaps the temptation down, not because he thinks that all knowledge worth having is dispassionate and objectively cold and detached, exercised, as we say, in a brown study, but for the opposite reason, namely that for him none is. Thomas thinks of intellect as a hot passion that seeks out the truth with intensity. He is, after all, a Dominican, whose motto is veritas, truth, which Dominicans connected in their persons with the way and the life, as did the Lord they follow. And anyway, Thomas's Latin word studium means nothing like our modern English word study. Thomas's studium means the intense and insatiable desire for knowledge and wisdom. It denotes a passion whereas our word study is closer to to denoting the uninspired dispassion at its worst of the pedant. I like that take on Thomas's theology, and I'll stick to it through thick and thin, but if any of you have ever tried reading the first part of the Summa Theologiae, questions 27 to 43 on the theology of the Trinity, you might seem to be justifiably sceptical. Those questions are replete with technical distinctions between persons, properties, relations, appropriations, processions, and with complex mappings of all these upon one another, in ways that, in its conceptual complexity, sets it well outside the intellectual range of any but David or a hard-nosed specialist with a very high IQ. That hue is distinctly brown, and if that is so, then all the more does it fail to address the needs of common Christian Trinitarian devotion and piety. Just ask any parish priest how he feels at the prospect of having to preach on Trinity Sunday, (laughs) and whether Thomas on the Trinity would be of the least use to him. Those of you who are seminarians here in training to preach, ask yourselves how you fancy the prospect of doing so in the years to come. More personally still, ask yourself how far such speculative theology could possibly offer anything of value to your prayer life. The French Catholic existentialist Gabriel Marcel once said that one should never confuse a mystery with a problem. A problem asks for a solution, a solution which resolves the problem. 
And if you're bright enough or conduct enough research or consult those who know, you'll find a solution to it, like a solution to a quadratic equation. Once solved, the problem is laid to rest. But mysteries do not yield to investigation, argument, proof or categorization. Mysteries can never be solved. They cannot be got to go away. Indeed, the deeper you enter into a mystery, the deeper the mystery itself gets. The gap between where you are with it and where the mystery lies never decreases. It only ever increases. Nor can you think your way out of a mystery, because to do so is to reduce the mystery to the standing of a problem. But if you cannot think your way out of a mystery, you can pray your way into one. Indeed, prayer is the only way there is into a mystery. Before a true mystery, the mind can only give way. You can't crack it. You can only surrender to it. The mind boggles, and yet you bow before it and you say, Amen. For strangely, in finding your way into a mystery, you come to know it in a manner that no solution to a problem ever achieves. You know a mystery and you love it as you know and love a friend. Friends are mysteries you want to live with. Mysteries are friends that make you happy. Problems, by contrast, are a curse until they're dissolved. So it is with the mystery of the Trinity. That's why, if upon reading that first part of the Summa on the Trinity, you might understandably feel constrained to complain that it makes the fatal mistake of reducing the mystery of the Trinity to an agenda of problems you can crack, it would be a mistake to think that way. For you would be quite right to suppose that Thomas there constructs a technical apparatus governing how to think about the mystery of the Trinity insofar as you can. Or perhaps better, that what he offers is a structure of reflection that will enable you to avoid making obvious theological mistakes of a kind that could lead you in no time at all into dogmatic error. Generally speaking, I'm sure that G.K. Chesterton is right. It's not the likes of Thomas. It's the heretics who want to reduce the mysteries to problems, as, for example, Arianism does. It's, after all, so much easier to suppose that Christ was nothing, was nothing but a man anyway, and so that he once was not, as the Arians would say, than to suppose that the eternal word of God became a man. Arius, in fact, didn't even want a problem to stand in his way of understanding Christ, never mind a mystery. And you could say that all that driest dust apparatus of distinction and relation in Thomas's Trinitarian theology is in no way meant to crack open the mystery of the Godhead, three in one. His theology of the Trinity in the first part of the summer undertakes a simple and unambitious, if very important, task, namely of clearing the space of mere problems that would distract our access to the deep mystery of God's inner life as, to reveal, as, as revealed to us in Christ. That technical meta-theology does not do the substantive theology of the Trinity. It creates the space for it, space that, as Thomas shows in the summer's third part, is best filled by prayer. And that's why you would be right in thinking that no one could preach a sermon sourced out of Thomas's Trinitarian theology in the summer's first part, nor that, as it stands, <coughs> nor that, as it stands, it tells us anything about prayer. But the impression that the summer nowhere provides either source material for preaching on the Trinity or any theology of prayer is profoundly mistaken. As to preaching, if any theologian knows about that subject, Thomas does. He's a Dominican, after all. And as Herbert McCabe used to say about Dominicans, what is distinctive of their mission is not prayer, that's for the monks who specialise in it. Dominicans don't pray, he said, they preach. And as to prayer, as a common practice of all those who preach, <laughs> I think it is fair to say that, that uniquely among medieval compilers of theological summaries, Thomas offers not just that formal treatise on the Trinity in the first part, of the summer, nor only a formal treatise on the Incarnation in its third part, for capping those schematic and formal outlines of the mysteries of God in Christ, Thomas offers in the third part of the summer an unprecedented discussion of the central episodes, mysteries he calls them, of the historical life of Jesus. Therein is a life of Christ in which, Thomas says, he will give, I quote, an account of the things that the Son of God did or suffered in his human nature, end of quote. It is in that connection that Thomas gives a striking account, too little known, 
of how the historical Jesus prayed. It is there, in those discussions of the man Jesus' prayer, that Thomas brings his teaching on the Trinity into the centre of the Christian life. When Thomas writes about prayer in general, as he does in the second part of the summer, he means something much more specific than we commonly refer to by our very generic English word for it, which today includes all sorts of different speech acts, thanking God, praising God, meditating about God, contemplating God, asking God, expressing contrition, sadness, joy, anger even. In fact, the whole panoply of human conversational styles falls under the word prayer, as we today construe the word, just so long as they are all forms of address to God. By contrast with our modern usage, and in an older tradition derived from the Church Fathers, when Thomas thinks of prayer, he has in mind that much narrower practice, as we call it, of petitionary prayer. That is, the practice of asking God for what we want. And this is not just his primary word for it. He takes it for granted that asking God for things is and should be our principal practice of conversation with God. It's not, he reminds us, that God doesn't know our needs anyway, and so as, if we, so as if it were that we have to inform him of them, for our Father in heaven knows all our needs well ahead of us. It's just that it is we who need in prayer to set our desires before God honestly and truthfully, and just as we actually experience them, uncensored, no matter what they are, so that by means of our prayer, our Father in heaven can read those needs back to us, back to us, interpret them for us. For as Thomas says, I quote in Latin again, Oratio est quodamado interpretativa voluntatis humane. That is, in English, prayer is in a certain manner an interpretation of what human beings want. End of quote. That's the reason why, though God does not need our prayers, we certainly do. For we do not always know what we want. Our desires are complicated. Plicata, he says in Latin, crumpled up, fold, folded over or one onto another, so that we do not recognise them ourselves. We do not know what we want. Therefore, we have to unfold our wants and needs in the only way possible to us, confused and bemused, muddled and befuddled as we are. That is the way of honest prayer. Because we do not know what we really want, we can only place our desires before God exactly as we actually experience them, so that God can read them back to us, ut eas, eas impleat, Thomas says, that is, so that our Father in heaven may fulfil our truest desires. Thus in prayer, our desires are at once honestly expressed, just as they are, and without pious pretense. And at the same time, those desires are interpreted, explicata, unfolded, as to what they really mean. For not by any means are, we, are what we think we want and what we truly want necessarily the same. We all know that. In this way, Thomas shares none of that squeamishness about petitionary prayer that one hears sometimes indulged by very high-minded people as if there were something mean, spiritually immature, small-minded and excessively needy about asking God to meet our petty desires and wants, as if spiritually grown-up people will pray only that God's will be done, come what may. Strange it is how people, such people neglect the rather, rather grubbier practice, also recommended by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, of asking our Father in heaven for daily supplies of bread. Sophisticated prayer, Jesus tells us, is for Pharisees, who like to be heard standing up before an audience and in loud voices informing God of their maturely disinterested desires, no doubt expecting encouraging pats on the back for their adult high-mindedness. The publican, by contrast, being a sinner, hides away and simply groans. He's needy, and though no doubt ashamed of his needs, prays desperately out of them. He knows neediness is, in the end, all he's got to offer. But groaning, Thomas says, is not just for sinners. Did Jesus pray, he asks, secundum suam sensualitatem? The Latin phrase is hard to translate into modern English, but the question means something like, did Jesus pray out of his animal desires? 
and in character, Thomas answers that it depends what you mean. (laughs) Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I quote, began to be greatly distressed and troubled, Mark tells us. Jesus, I quote again, flung himself to the ground. This reads like a narrative of an eyewitness. And the tradition is that Mark, as a very young man or boy, was there at the time. I witnessed Jesus' distress. And then Jesus prayed, and by all accounts, very bluntly too. For the grammatical mood is not deprecating and conditional. It's an unconditioned imperative. It's the plea of a frightened man, not a polite request. Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. It's imperative. It's as if he'd said, Father, you're free to remove this cup. Remove it then. Of course, you'll say there's more to it than that desperate cry. But Mark's account adds that Jesus said, yet not what I will, but what you will. But the addendum is unnecessary. Mark's Jesus is no stoic. You do not need the additional phrase because it simply glosses the pleading as having been placed before his father, God, which rather goes without saying. Jesus will accept any outcome, of course, but he distinctly knows which he would prefer. So his prayer is his pleading, and his pleading is in the prayer. That's the reason, Thomas says, why Jesus is shown as praying secundum suam sensualitatem. It is, I quote Thomas, for our instruction that Jesus wanted us to know what in his natural human will he desired, and to what his animal impulses drew him. Thereby, I continue to quote, Jesus, I quote, shows us that it is permitted for human beings, out of their natural desires, to will something other than what God wills. End of quote. Then he adds the authority of Augustine in support of what he knows to be, for some, perhaps especially, uh, <coughs> sorry, perhaps especially for those posh praying spiritual sophisticates, a surprisingly raw and unprocessed, perhaps even scandalously un- unspiritual thought. For Augustine says it was, I quote, In this way that Christ, bearing the weight of his humanity, shows that he has a human will of his own. And in accordance with that human will, he prays, take this chalice away from me. But because he wished to be a righteous man and to be moved back towards God, he adds, not though, as I wish it, but rather as you do. And all this, Augustine goes on, is as if to say, see yourself in me, and you will see that it is quite acceptable Pray for what you wish, even though God may wish something else. End of quote. Jesus, at least, prayed honestly as any human would. Indeed, you could say that his honesty before God was all that his prayer consisted in. At any rate, so say Thomas and Augustine. Well, maybe you'll feel that such honesty in prayer is pretty scary. In truth, Fake piety is easier than such honest neediness. There is something humanly truthful about the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane, as Mark recalls it. But the realism of that episode pales before Mark's account of that even starker horror of Jesus' last words on the cross. Mark's dying Jesus is a pathetic wreck. He's a terrified man, not only by, because of his physical pain, Though even of that, there is in in him none of the magisterial calm that Luke and John report. Not only because he's been abandoned by men, above all by his friends, which he expected, but because he fears something else that he did not expect, the ultimate disaster, and he seems to experience, experience it. So he's been abandoned even by his own father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries. And he dies, his question falling upon deaf ears, as it would seem, but is left unanswered for the nonce. Luke tells us that in Gethsemane, an angel was sent to Jesus to console him. No such encouragement is offered here in Mark's narrative as death beckons. No inspiring last words heroically evoked, just a loud cry and then a dead and empty silence. As I'm told, the original version of Mark's gospel ended with another emptiness, that of the tomb, the resurrection narrative being later tacked on by another hand, as if, 
as it is as if the bleakness of Mark's original and me ending was too much to bear. At all events, even as Mark's narrative now reads, if Jesus' prayer in the garden teaches tough lessons, Jesus' prayer on the cross might seem to be little short of blasphemous. But it might seem to be the despairing cry of a wretched man who has lost his faith in his father's will. But we know that they're not words of despair. However bleak and needy, they are still a prayer to his God. Indeed, those nine words are a further, yet more radical model of how to pray, model offered once more, as Thomas says, for our instruction. For sure, it's stronger meat as way of pray, ways of praying go than the resigned calm of Luke's Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And just as surely, Mark's narrative requires us to adjust our notions of what good praying looks like. Only this time, the adjustment needed is more disturbing still. The centurion standing by gets it. Truly, this man was the son of God, he says. And it seems on the evidence alone of those desperate last words of a humiliated Christ. That's pretty smart theology for a mere army sergeant. So where is Thomas with all this? And what has it to do with those formal, and perhaps you might have thought at the time, rather dry, possibly even academic and professorial questions of abstract theological epistemology that I raised with you just now? What has it to do with the dauntingly technical speculative theology of the Trinity, with that severely apophatic negative theology, with the trope of the darkness of God? Has this to do with it, that when we Christians, at any rate we Catholics, Roman or otherwise, invoke the Trinity in our lives, we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as we do so, we make the sign of the cross. When we do this, it is as if to say, as even the philosophers knew, it is true that God, not being any kind of being, we are drawn by reason into God's impenetrable cloud of unknowing. It is true that the same darkness of God is deepened by the very demonstration of God's existence, which far from placing God within the grasping hands of reason, shows that at the heart of our highest rational powers, we're drawn even more deeply and surely into the divine darkness. And it is true that even by the revelation of the mystery of the Godhead, we're drawn into the Trinitarian being itself, and so into some share in how God knows and loves himself. Yet still we are in all these ways drawn into a mystery that is in itself utterly beyond us. Grappling with those overlapping and ever-deepening mysteries of reason and of faith, the best we can do with it all is to ask the theologians to spell out and articulate, as does Thomas in his Summa, some formal speculative propositions with which we can, as it were within a framework, stabilise our theological language, our language about God. But when we want to read the Trinity within our lives, or better, when we want our lives to be read within the Trinitarian life, there we truly enter by way of all knowledge and desire into the darkness of God mapped onto our own human ground within our sight. Then it is that we make the sign of the cross. Then it is that we enter into the true darkness of God, God's own darkness in the person of the crucified Son. For the cross is what the Trinity looks like when it is made visible within the violence and pain of human history. Jesus' desolation in his passion and death wreaks havoc with our natural expectations of how a God should appear among us. For on the cross is no superhuman, but one despised, and as one seeming to be, in the words of Isaiah, the most rejected of men. Here is no merely theoretical unknowability, for here on the cross the Godhead is not recognisable even as a man, never mind as a God. But that is how it is. For Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and on Golgotha is the Trinity inscribed within time, history and human experience, inscribed upon our sensual animal being. Jesus' last words are the broken prayers of a man who can address his father only secundum suum sensualitatem. Here we finally discover the concrete and lived meaning of the darkness of God, now no longer as a meta-theological abstraction, but now as an event that falls within the narrative grasp of our experience. The darkness of God is now the Trinity come among us 
in the form of animal pain. It is the Trinity calling us into an obedience to the Father's will that is truly blind and unknowing. But it is the unknowing of love. For on the cross, the dramatist personae are three. The Son prays in desperation to his Father, says Mark, and having prayed in the darkness of God, yields up his spirit, as Luke says. And then there is us. Herein lies the mystical, the mysterium fidei, that is within our power to grasp. Our, our, to grasp at, within our grasp to live. And I suppose we should be shocked that if, as Thomas said, the mystery of the inner life of the Godhead has only one way of appearing among us, namely, as Thomas says, in its effects in history and in time, then that these are the effects by which we know the Trinity. Those effects are the death throes of a falsely judged criminal by some very religious people, not unlike ourselves. But that's how it is. That's why we've been taught to make the sign of the cross when we call upon the Trinity in prayer. The Trinity and the cross map onto one another like a transparent palimpsest. Either way, you have to read through the one to read the other. Surely this man was the son of God, says the Roman mercenary, getting it. Surely the mystery of the Godhead is visible at last in the desolation of the cross. Thomas, like Mark's centurion, gets it. And it is in his getting it that we have reasons today to celebrate the man's life as a theologian saint. Thank you. I can't speak to it very well, to be honest with you, because I have a very limited experience pedagogically. I mean, I teach in posh universities, for God's sake. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> it's very limiting. Uh, um, and I, uh, I... Do you know, I actually think I can get on better with a five-year-old on these questions than with a 16-year-old who is just so problematised by sex and, you know, hormones and things like that. I, <laughs> I, it's very, very difficult. So, uh, I'm, I'm not a good teacher you know, of, of people that age. But with a five-year-old, I, you see, uh, when I was in, uh, became a professor in Cambridge, it, in British universities there's a custom that it, it, people in senior chairs have to do an inaugural lecture. Right? And I did an inaugural lecture called How to Be an Atheist. Because right? I thought, well, it's, 
what we need is better kind of arguments from atheists than we get from Richard Dawkins. Um, uh, and, um, because one doesn't want to waste one's time simply showing Dawkins is a fool, because he shows it himself frequently. Um, uh, that's a bit rude, but um, he's very rude, uh, and that was mild. Um, anyway, um, so... Uh, I found myself giving this inaugural lecture on how to be an atheist, asking the atheist, would they kindly improve the quality of their atheistic arguments? So we've got actually something to challenge. Um, and then I ended the, the lecture, it is, I don't know why I'm telling you this, um, ended the lecture by saying, well, look, the thing is about Thomas uh, is that he brings you back to being three or four or five years old because right? he asks really impossible questions. Like this. Why is there something, anything at all, rather than nothing? Now, the last time, otherwise than within the context of reading Thomas, I asked that question was probably when I was three or four. When I sort of thought, wow, supposing there was nothing at all, where would I be? And then sort of say, no, there wouldn't be me either. Yeah. I mean, how could there be nothing? And you, you, you begin to get hold of an incredibly puzzling, a difficult idea. And that is that we deal with things all the time. We, there's this kind of thing, and we have this science for dealing with it. We have this other kind of thing, we have that kind of science for dealing with it. But they are, I, I think that's the case in the sciences and with the humanities on the whole. What Marx says about each age asking only such questions as they can answer, you can say about universities. Universities, on the whole, spend their time dealing with straightforward curricula in which a certain kind of question is a relevant historical question, and this kind of evidence supplies the answer to just that kind of question. And there's another kind of question which the psychologists will deal with, and they've got a whole sort of way of matching answers to, uh, to, to questions. But you ask a question so offbeat that nobody has any grip whatsoever on a scientific discipline which gives you a chance of asking it. You are straight into mystery. Why is there anything rather than nothing? It's seriously weird. Because the rather than governs something on the one side of it and nothing at all on the other side of it. So how can you get the grammar of rather than going at all? This is what puzzles the three or four-year-old. How can we do this? And that, I think, is what Thomas is saying. Listen, get there, and you have begun to be in a place where you can actually begin to understand theology. But without being there, you can't. And that's one reason why Thomas does take philosophy seriously. Because you need, as he puts it in his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, the whole thing, Aristotle says, begins with amazement. And the thing that Thomas says at the end of his commentary on that uh, introduction is... And by the way, you don't get to the end of amazement at the end. You don't do amazement down. And that's the difference between a mystery and a problem. A problem you come to an end of, right? You know when you've got there. That's one of the scientific disciplines. But when you're into a mystery, you get more and more amazed, not more and more complacent, right? So a mystery is a challenge. And I think kids are pretty good at that until we educate them out of it. Yeah, good man. I'll give you a three or four year old answer. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I wondered, I, I sort of wondered before coming here and having reread the, the, the paper I'd written and deciding, I mean, Courtney, my wife, will say, you know, for the 50th time not to mess around with it again and then <laughs> did so. Um, I, poor old Courtney has gone through 40 versions of this. But anyway, um, uh, uh, I, um, I, I wondered if anybody, uh, after I'd finished would say, but hang about, it doesn't end with the cross. What about the resurrection? Um, and uh, I, I sort of thought to myself, look, there's a, there's a sort of version of the Christian story according to which everything goes badly wrong, 
This is called the crucifixion. Then the coals were pulled out of the fire, and that's called the resurrection. Right? And it's like the sort of the US cavalry comes over the hill at the end and sort of sees us through, right? um, as if the resurrection was a solution to a problem, which you know, the crucifixion sort of left us with. Well, actually, you see, I think, um, I think this is Thomas. Um, I was going to make a comment, but I'll leave it on one side. I think this is Thomas, and I think it is that the resurrection is simply the meaning of the cross. That it isn't another episode. You know how it is liturgically, we strung things out. There's Monday, Thursday, there's Good Friday, there's Holy Saturday, there's Easter Sunday, then 40 days later there's the Ascension, and then the coming of Pentecost. Now, there's only one mystery there. It's just narratively spun out as a series of meanings, each of which reinterprets the preceding mystery. Do you see what I mean? So we're getting layer upon layer. I use this word at the end of this paper called the word palimpsest, and I suddenly thought, I bet nobody knows what a palimpsest is. Um, <laughs> a palimpsest is just simply a manuscript which has been whited over and you've written another manuscript on top of it, so you have to scrape away the top layer in order to see what's going on behind. And I sort of invented the sort of trope of a... a, 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 a um, a see-through palimpsest, where you actually more like putting, uh, uh, um, oh no, uh, sorry, analogy is going to be bad. But anyway, one picture sort of reads another picture by being overlaid upon it, so you see both simultaneously. Now, I think those, those separated out feast days are just layers in a palimpsest, a complex palimpsest of four or five different layers. The cross is intelligible in terms of the resurrection. The resurrection is intelligible in terms of the ascension. In fact, the only meaning of the resurrection you can possibly have is in terms of the ascension. The resurrection is meaningless without the ascension. Um, And the coming of the Holy Spirit is meaningless without Jesus. He tells us, I have to go away, otherwise the Spirit can't come. I mean, he puts it that in a kind of conditional way. So he's saying, look, the whole thing reads as a single complex mystery. That's why I didn't need to talk about the resurrection. I knew you knew about the resurrection. Anyway, the, what I was saying about the, res, uh, the cross, Jesus' prayer on the cross, being a prayer, is already to say it's a resurrection. You see what I mean? So I, I, I think, I, 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 you know, I've lost track of the question. That sounds like... <laughs> That sounds like a very good answer, but I have no idea what the question was. Anyway, yeah. uh, what was it? Was, um, in other terms, it's very discouraging sometimes, I think, um, for our empirically uh, sound like minds yeah. to, to think, okay, well, God is unknowable. Yeah. Um, so why do And so, like, from the, from the, out from the, um, from the get-go, it seems discouraging. Yeah. So I guess for us, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. Where's the good news in the you see, uh, you see I, I, I don't think unknowability, I've been trying to say in a kind of cack-handed way that unknowability is not the failure of something. It's, it's a wonderful success. You've got there when you've got to what is genuine mystique. It's not, you know, it's, it's not giving up on trying to understand. Thomas never gives up. I mean, listen, that guy, he, you know, I calculated that he wrote in the last 18 months of his life four Agatha Christie novels per month. Yeah? Right? And they weren't Agatha Christie novels. It's your formulae. You know, commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, commentary on the De Anima, the last part of it, didn't finish the last part of the song. Then what happens on December the 6th, 1273? He stops writing and he says to Reginald de Piperno, his amanuensis, Reginald, on account of what I've seen today, I can write no more. And he wrote no more. He died three months later, not having completed the Summa Theology. And that incompleteness of the Summa Theology is, it, it itself says something about what Thomas thought he was doing. It was unsayable. And the unsayability of things is something we need to communicate. It's the wonderful mystery which takes us beyond anything we know where we are at home. It takes us out of ourselves. It's called ecstasis in Greek, ecstasy, right? Which we associate with sort of silly psychological phenomena and levitations and things like, read Teresa of Abel on meditation, she's hilarious, um, uh, on levitation. But anyway, uh, no, no, uh, the Greeks, Greek fathers use ecstasis to talk about the way in which through language, 
through human relationships, through human community, we are led into something unutterably amazing. So unknowing isn't failure. It is being amazed. Just amazed. And having a life which is governed by amazement. Lived amazement. It's great. It's what you know when you're in love, right? Isn't it? Just amazed. You live it. And everything works better. You know, the mind works better and your appetite comes back and... Well, unless it's unrequited, in which case you lose it altogether. So, come back to the theme of engagement quite a bit. Yeah. And really, getting ready to my practical question is how do I generate that engagement in others? Pray. How do I present that engagement? Prayer. Uh, I mean, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to be short. I, what I meant was, what that question is about is prayer. Right? And you can ask that same question about prayer, how do I pray? And all I was trying to say about that, according to Thomas, is as you feel. Right? So long as it's prayer, you have in itself, in, by virtue of the fact, you don't need to say, oh, not my will, God, but your will be done, when you know damn well that you hope it won't be done, and it will be your will, right? <laughs> well, you do. I mean, you, you pray in that unselfish kind of way, and you've got this sinking feeling in your bottom of your heart that your prayer will be answered, right? That's because you're not praying as you want. Not praying out of where you are. You're praying out of a pretense to be somewhere else. So would you tell them to pray as they feel? Pray as you feel. Herbert McCabe, who I love dearly, this great Dominican theologian, used to say, listen, if what you want is to get into bed with Mrs. So-and-so around the corner, pray for it. It deals with it, I can tell you. But if you sort of say, no, I can't let that sort of thought, that kind of vulgar thought, come into my prayer. What are you making a prayer? You're making a pretense out of it. Because as Herbert McCabe said, look, a person on a, on a plane that's crashing doesn't pretend anymore. And since most of us are sort of morally speaking on a plane that's crashing, then pray, <laughs> uh, yeah, pray out of where we are. Yeah. Not out of the pharisaical pretense to be somehow rather superior to all this. As if, as if I'm fine. Yeah? Um, I just want poor old God to have a better deal, so you know, I'll cheer him up. I mean, just parasaical stuff. Yeah. 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 We have time for only one more. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> 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 There's a story somewhere. Yeah. As he, he is, yeah. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, you've made it very clear about the word of mm. grace. What about the word of glory? And what about the? The word of glory. In other words, oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Glory and, and the vision of God and yeah, glory. Yeah. And um, a second, it's just a, it's a minute to make you talk mm. about it. Mm. But I'm also thinking of the mystery of the Trinity and the transfiguration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, wow. Well, you know, yeah, those yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, I, I mean, I may have given the impression just on that last point that, that, that uh, sorry, uh, that I may have given the impression just on that last point that I thought that the only source for a doctrine of the Trinity was to be found in the cross. Of course, there are plenty of other places. I mean, even the baptism of Jesus, not all, all the way through. Um, I just think it all comes, you know, to, to, to uh, uh, sort of 
uh, yeah, I don't know what, a, a consummation there or something. You know, uh, uh, and as I say, that's why, um, uh, going back to the question we were having a bit earlier, that I don't think you can separate the cross from the resurrection, etc., etc. Now, on the basic vision, I, do you know, I, I, I'm not happy with Thomas on the basic vision. I'm not. I much prefer Gregory of Nyssa as the only one I know, uh, you know who, who offers this sort of account that basically unknowing and the desire to sort of get to keeps going for eternity. And actually, this kind of notion of, this is a caricature of Thomas, but somehow or other you feel that it's a bit there of a blank stare forever as a sort of essence of God. I, I, I somehow, I, I kind of want a bit of variety, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 I mean, that's probably a caricature, but the, part of the problem, do you know what part of the problem is? That, um, as I said, Thomas, on December the 6th, 1273, stopped writing in the summer, and he stopped before he got to the eschatology. Yeah? Now, you've got the, well, what you said you know, is there in his commentary on the sentences and so on, and there was that terrible version of the summer produced by those editors who put together answers to questions they invented, taken from the commentary on the sentences. And I think it was a really bad idea, because actually the incompleteness of the summer theology is a statement itself, a theological statement. Yeah. And I think it should be left that way. But it does mean we don't have Thomas's most mature words on this question of the beatific vision. And as it stands, I just don't get it psychologically. I do not feel panting with desire for the beatific vision, I'm sorry to say. Um, I just hope it'll be otherwise. But there we are. Yeah. Sorry, it's a rather downbeat note, but yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. 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 listening to the Notre Dame Seminary Podcast. Notre Dame is a Roman Catholic seminary and graduate school of theology located in New Orleans, Louisiana. For more information, log on to www.nds.edu.